Thank you. I'm loving being here already. Uh, by the way, is Wendy here? Where, where's Wendy? Oh, there you are. Wendy, I just want to say a huge thank you to you. Because I, I came back from Norway on Monday night, very late on Monday night, and I picked up some horrible Norwegian lurgy. And on t uh, by Wednesday morning, knowing that I was due to fly up here yesterday, I was feeling sick, sick, sick. Now, I've just make, got to make a man confession here. When I'm slightly sick, I feel like I'm dying, all right? But, <clears throat> but anyway, uh, ladies, just get used to it if you aren't already. But Wendy, at the end of it, she, I called her to say, just to give her a heads up, look, I'm not sure whether I'm going to be well enough to come up on Saturday. So Wendy listened very nicely, but at the end of it, bless her, she just said, well, come on, Bruce, let's pray for you. Well, the next morning, Wendy, I've just got to tell you, I felt dramatically different. So I just want to say thank you, and God bless you, and thank you, Lord, for, for using your servant like that for me. I, I love working with churches like that, where Jesus is the answer to our problems. Um, let's pray for a moment. Lord, as we turn to your word in Scripture again now, I ask that it might be your spirit of wisdom and revelation who'd be upon us. Lord, that you'd help me to speak and wisely, rightly handle your word of truth. And I ask too for each one of us, myself included, Lord, that as we hear it afresh this morning, you will speak not only into our minds and our understanding, but deep into our hearts and lives as well. And I ask this in your wonderful name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Uh, so I want to read you two short passages from the Gospels. The first is from the Gospel of Mark, and I think the text will come up in a moment, if that's all right. Mark chapter 6. Are we there? Not yet. There, there we are. Uh, Mark chapter 6, verse 1 it is. So I'll just read you the six verses from Mark's Gospel. Uh, by the way, the Lord has just raised um, this Jairus' daughter from the dead, okay? And, and, and now he left that place and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few people who were ill and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Now I want to read you a contrasting passage. Look with me now. It's the end of Matthew 14. <clears throat> and by the way, the Lord's just fed 5,000 people. He's walked on water. <clears throat> you read this book? The amazing things that are recorded here. Uh, anyway, uh, he walked on water and Peter's had a go and had half sunk and had to be caught and so on. But then we get to uh, the, 
they got into the boat and the storm stopped, etc. And then we read in verse 34, right at the end of the chapter, when they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, now listen please to the language, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all who were ill to him and begged him to let those who were ill just touch the edge of his cloak. And all who touched it were healed. Rather dramatic difference, don't you think? I call it the faith environment. One rather negative, skeptical, hostile in Nazareth, his hometown. We know our Jesus. By the way, they didn't name his sisters as well, but they gave this long list. We know our Jesus, and he doesn't do things like that. Or if he does, there's something wrong. And yet here, and these people, by the way, in Gennesaret were sort of half Jewish, half, uh, they were a mixture of people there. And, uh, but they, heard, they knew of Jesus' reputation. They went running everywhere. The mobile phone lines were humming, uh, bringing people to Jesus. By the way, that is a fabulous picture of what we as the church should be. Uh, I'll come back to that just a little bit later. Now, I want to just kick off by just stating some basic, really important truths. And I know Ollie has been teaching these things here uh, for some time, so I'm just repeating what he has taught you already. But the good news that Jesus came to preach to us all was the good news that the dynamic rule and reign of God, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven had come. He didn't say, look at me, I'm the king, but nevertheless it came in his own person first as the true son of the kingdom, true God from true God, but he came to proclaim this message that the government of God, the kingdom of God has come near and if people make the right response, repent and believe, they can appropriate this kingdom. It's that that close to people? Is that available to people? And people say, well, hang on a moment. Don't we, aren't we meant to preach Christ and him crucified? Absolutely. What is sin, dear people? What's the essence of what sin is about? Well, I'll tell you just for the sake of time. It's to reject your creator God and not live in right relationship with him. And all our sins, the wrong things we commit, flow out of that broken relationship with God. That's the root. It's not just whether you do good or bad things. The deepest root of sin is our broken relationship with God. And if the Lord Jesus Christ hadn't died on the cross for your sins and mine, for the sin of the world, we could never have the kingdom of God back in this world again. It is literally the key in history's door that opened the door for the kingdom of God to come back to this. It was there in the garden. It got rejected in Genesis chapter 3. God gave a foreshadowing it in the Old Testament to prove to all people that we cannot pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and live a kingdom life that pleases God in our own strength. And only when all humanity had been shown that through one priestly people, then the way was clear for God himself to come and put things right. But here's another basic truth, and sorry, I'm skimming over lots of big things this morning to, to explain these passages. <clears throat> um, when God created us in his image and likeness, the, what was the job he gave us to do? Anybody read this book? <laughs> what was the job? Rule. He created us in his image and likeness so we could have a relationship with him, 
I won't develop that further now, but, but the job we were given was rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over all the creatures that move on, over all the earth. You and me, since the beginning of time with our first forebears, were created to exercise the kingdom of God on earth. That's why in the New Testament, Paul says, we therefore are Christ's ambassadors. Well, you're not a very good ambassador unless you're representing the rule of the government that has sent you to another country. We're walking, talking representatives of the most magnificent king, the most magnificent government that could ever, ever exist. And by the way, it's always going to exist and every other knee and authority and the rest is going to bow before King Jesus. So we're on the winning team, guys, even if it doesn't always look like it, okay? So, but here's the interesting thing. If God has delegated responsibility for the kingdom to humanity, and remember the Bible also te teaches that he who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind. Uh, he's not like a man that he would do that. He never, when he's decided something, it never changes. So even after Genesis chapter 3, God didn't stop the plan. Say, oh, I've got to come up with plan B now. And this, I'll prove it to you, because the last chapter of the Bible says, they, the redeemed, when new heavens have come to, down to new earth, um, they, the redeemed, uh, sorry, the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, so it's God's throne, always, it's his kingdom, never ours, but they, the redeemed, will reign on the new earth forever and ever. God has never, and he will never change the plan. Now, here's the problem. I want you to think about this. I know it's Sunday morning, okay, but stir up the gray matter. <clears throat> How could God come when we failed, I'm talking about the old covenant people now, but they represent us, have failed to exercise the kingdom properly? How can God come in person and do it himself without violating the deal that he made with us at the beginning when his gifts and his call, for example, the New Testament, are irrevocable. They'll never be changed. Answer, read Philippians chapter 2. Even though he was, uh, when he came amongst us, he did not consider equality with God, all the glory of God and the rest, uh, to be clung onto when he came amongst us. But he emptied himself. Now, he did not empty himself of his divine identity. You remember he said, before Abraham was, I am. That's the name of God. They picked up stones to stone him for blasphemy. He was that clear about it. So he never denied or hid his true identity. But the way he chose for love of us, honoring the deal that he made with us at the very beginning, was to come and do it as one of us. And I know there's mystery in this, but he did it as a human being. And that's why he waited until he was filled with the Holy Spirit at his baptism at the River Jordan. He had no miracles before then. And he, even after he was filled with the Holy Spirit, he is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. God, read James chapter 1. God cannot be tempted. So what's going on in the wilderness? And by the way, the worst temptations came after he'd been fasting for, for 40 days. So he was pretty hungry by then. That's what the Bible says. And he was hungry. I mean, we'll talk about an understatement after 40 days of fasting. But, and, and he was tempted as to whether he would abuse these gifts of God and use them for any other purpose other than what the Father had given him to do. 
Is this making sense? And he returned, Luke tells us, he returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Now here's the point. Having chosen to do it that way, he's a model for all of us. That is why when we are born again, he never needed to be born again. He was the new man from conception in the womb of Mary. But we must be born again, like he said to Nicodemus, in order to enter the kingdom of God. But when we've entered the kingdom of God and received and been filled with the Holy Spirit and are taught to use the gifts of the Spirit, not to become a crazy, charismatic, or Pentecostal, God bless every wing of the church. I'm not knocking anybody. It's actually the tools to do kingdom ministry. Hello? That's, it's everyday stuff, whether we're at the office or at the school gate or in church on Sunday or wherever, but they're the tools to do kingdom ministry. And they're not an optional extra. Paul says, follow the way of love, eagerly desire all these gifts, and especially that you may prophesy, learn to hear God's voice and speak for God to other people. We can all do this. You can all prophesy and turn, he says, so that everybody may be instructed and encouraged. This is a common economy if we're born again into the kingdom. Now, the church, I'm not talking about St. Mungo's now, I'm talking about what I know, has taken a long time to wake up to these realities and recover them properly and responsibly. But that's what it's about. And so, anyway, uh, the point is this, is that having chosen to do it as one of us by faith, This meant that when human beings around him to whom the kingdom of God had been entrusted since creation didn't want the kingdom, they had the terrifying God-given right to resist the presence and work of the Holy Spirit, for which they would have to give answer on the day of judgment. Um, So do you see what I'm, I'm saying here? So when the Lord goes to Nazareth, Uh, Or you can see it building up in Mark's Gospel. Mark chapter 1, the Lord casts a demon out of a man in a synagogue. He heals lots of people in the evening. But even later in the chapter, the opposition against him starts building up. Uh, He goes to, uh, 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 he's in a household where a man is let down through the roof who's paralyzed. And there's some teachers of the law, nobody said a word, thinking to themselves, why does this fellow speak like this, he's blaspheming, when the Lord started healing this man by saying, my son, words of love and relationship, your your sins are forgiven. And they challenged, you know, inwardly, they never said a word, but the Holy Spirit showed Jesus what they were thinking. Now, is that beginning to be a slightly edgy faith environment? So what does the Lord do? Does he just press on to try to heal the guy? No, he does spiritual warfare. He exposes their thinking by saying, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the sick man, uh, your, your sins are forgiven, which heals the human spirit, or to say, get up and take up your bed and walk. By the way, which have we found it much easier to do in the church? Their problem is with Jesus forgiving sins. They were there at that gathering because they'd heard Jesus was healing people. Sadly, in many churches, not St. Mungo's, but it's the other way around. And Jesus says there's no difference. One heals the human spirit, forgiveness. The other heals the human body. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth. And that's the Son of Man. That's us in solidarity in Christ, by the way. We have the authority to forgive. And he said, I tell you, take up your bed and walk. Opposition builds up against Jesus. I'm skipping Mark chapter 3. There's a man with a, it's the Sabbath day, there's a man with a crippled hand there, and they're all watching to see if they could accuse Jesus of doing a work on the Sabbath. 
So what does the Lord do? He organizes a spiritual shootout at OK Corral. Come and stand in front of all of us. But he didn't try to heal him first. This is opposition to the kingdom of God. He has to, he, he's picked it up. He's got to, to deal with it. And he said, come on, people. Get a life. I'm adding Bruce Collins' words at the moment, okay? Uh, but... Uh, which is lawful? Tell me. Which is actually lawful? What's the purpose of the Sabbath? What's lawful? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to destroy? And they had no answer to that because he'd exposed the darkness in their hearts, their real motives. They were trying to get at him. And only after he'd used the sword of the Spirit to confront this darkness, then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he was completely healed. Do you see this? He had to deal with the environment. We could jump on to Mark chapter 5 with Jairus with coming to Jesus, the synagogue ruler. My little daughter is dying. Please come and help. And Jesus came with him. And then there's this episode of a lady who's, as it turns out, has 10 years of, of uh, gynae problems. And uh, <clears throat> poor old Jairus must have been hopping from one foot to the other, waiting. Jesus lavishing time on this lady when his daughter is dying. And then the worst thing happens. Some of his mates come around the corner. And I mean, they're so gentle and pastoral and loving in the way they do it. Why bother the teacher anymore? Your daughter's dead. I mean, what a wonderful, loving way to tell him, given the bad news. But please notice what Jesus did. Number one, he didn't let it get to his own human heart. He was as human as you and me, as well as being truly divine. When we ever might be at risk of hearing bad news of our own health, tests where the doctors have told us the truth, you've got a life-threatening condition, or this or that, whatever you do, prepare yourself before that so that you hear that from a kingdom of God perspective, not a this-world perspective, even when the doctors are doing their genuine, good, God-given job of telling you the truth about the situation. Is this making sense? Guard your own heart, for it's the wellspring of your life, the Bible says. Secondly, turn to Jairus. Now, I don't know what old Jairus was able to do this. He just said, don't be afraid. Just believe. Do you know that fear is a powerful form of faith? Hello? Powerful form of faith. You know, you only feel frightened, experience fear, if you believe that something bad is either happening to you or is going to happen to you. If you didn't believe it, you wouldn't feel the fear. It's that simple. And it quenches true faith. When Peter got frightened walking on water, that's when he began to sink because his fears overcame his faith what Jesus said, come. Do you, do you see this principle? And then, this is an amazing thing. The Lord starts really managing the faith environment from this point on. He's got a crowd of people there. He's got 12 disciples. He only allowed his three top disciples, Peter, James, and John, to come with him. If I was Philip, I would, hang on a minute. He's leaving me out of this. And by now, the, everyone knows this girl's died. But he only he took quality, the best guys he had available to him. And remember, he hasn't, hadn't raised anybody from the dead at that point in his ministry. He goes to a house, now listen carefully to this, and he hears a faith environment being very loudly expressed. They were weeping and wailing loudly already, a whole crowd of them. Now, is that a good faith environment? Why do you weep and wail loudly? I mean, if those guys had had any 
clue about what was about to happen, they would have probably been getting scaffold poles and planks to make a grandstand to watch. When did you last see someone raised from the dead? You, you see the point. But anyway, he's very gracious with them. He said, why all this commotion and wailing? The little girl's not dead, but asleep. Uh, he's giving a kingdom of God perspective. I'm coming to wake her up, bring her back to life again. What was their response? Do you remember the text? But they laughed at him, refused to believe what he was saying. So what's he do? You know, there's really good coffee being served outside over there, or no, the long way away from here, okay, but preferably through closed doors, because you're not helping the faith environment right now. He put them all out, and he took loving desire with him, the girl's father and mother, if there were two people on earth besides Jesus who most wanted that little girl to come back, it was the father and mother. I can't imagine what it would be like to lose a child. And, and, and so that he took this loving desire with him, but also the best faith that he could have, the best quality faith, to, along with him into that room, and then raised the girl from the dead. And, uh, <coughs> and then, I love it, he's so practical, just give her something to eat. She's starving now because she's been sick for quite some time. It's so practical, so beautiful. Um, but do you see how it, um, he had to manage that faith? And then we go into Mark chapter 6, which I've just read, when they took offense at him. I'll give you one more interesting story. Uh, am I doing all right through the time? Um, it, uh, if you look at Mark chapter 8, this, I, don't think I, I haven't warned the guys about this. Um, to put it up above. But in verse 22, uh, they came to Bethsaida. Jesus with his disciples. Now let me explain something. He'd been there before. He'd preached the gospel. He'd healed the sick. They'd, they'd seen it. They'd heard it and so on. Now we're not told why, but actually if you read, for example, both Matthew and Luke record Jesus saying, woe to you Chorazin, woe to you Bethsaida, for if the miracles I did in you the first time I came, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes uh, and so on. Uh, but they obviously didn't. Now, we're not told why, but Bethsaida was a place that was resistant to Jesus. Now, a second visit, they bring him a man who's blind, and what does the Lord do? A very strange thing. He took him by the hand and he took him out of town. That's a very unusual story. It's exceptional. And then when the Lord of glory ministers to him, this blind man, it took the Lord two shots to get him healed. First time... There was an improvement, and he said, I can see men walking around like trees. Um, that's all I can see. It's very dim, and the rest of it. So the Lord then ministered to him again, and then he could see clearly. So I take encouragement for that. If I had to minister ten times, if, you know, Jesus took two. Um, you see the point. But anyway, what's going on here? And by the way, when the man got his sight back, Jesus said something very, very interesting to him. Don't go home through that town. Implication, you lose your healing. They'll talk you out of it. You know, we had, I was leading a team of churches in Harrow, and we had a youth church, a young people's church. And uh, I was preaching down there one evening. And uh, ministry time, I was ministering to somebody. I had noticed there was a girl brought who, it turned out wasn't a Christian. She was in a wheelchair. And a whole bunch of our guys got around to minister to her. And I, after about five minutes, I heard whoops of joy. This girl was 
out of her wheelchair, and she was dancing. Now, she was semi-paralyzed. And she was dancing because the, the team, the worship band were, were leading the worship and so on. And uh, at the end of it, put the wheelchair in the boot of the car, whoever took her home. She, sitting in the car, she ran up the, the path to the front door, banged through the front door. Mum, Dad, I'm home. Look at what's happened to me. Her parents were convinced secular humanists, atheists, convinced. Their first words to their daughter was, why are you not in your wheelchair? She was only 15, and sadly the next morning she was back in that wheelchair. Because parents have God-given authority over their children until they've brought them to know Jesus. You see what I'm trying to say here? The faith environment around us is actually quite important. Don't go home through that village, uh, and so on. Now, what am I saying? I'll just go to that last story in Matthew's Gospel, where here, the Lord's reputation had gone ahead of him, and word goes out everywhere. They brought all their sick to him. They just begged them so that these people could just touch the edge of his cloak. That's all they needed to do. And, uh, uh, and, and all who touched it, touched the edge of his cloak, were healed. And, you know, I learned, started tumbling to these things. Um, first, when I started understanding properly the incarnation of Jesus, he laid aside his divine glory and ministered as one of us. But it's through ministering by God's grace in several different countries, from fairly secular humanistic cultures, I'm not talking about the churches, but the, the countries in Europe, Western Europe and so on, um, to places in China or India or South America and, and particularly Africa. And I noticed that Bruce, with his same old minimal faith, I saw much more happening in some places and far less happening. And I was saying, Lord, why? What's the difference? Then the Lord started showing me these things in the text. And I started understanding this, that actually the faith environment is very, very important. I'll just tell you, um, we're seeing a lot of healing now happening in Wales, praise God. I'm, I'm one of the leaders of the network. We have Julian Richards who leads it. Um, but anyway, Julian's daughter, Chloe, uh, not long ago did a, a PhD where her topic was um, to investigate healing miracles in Wales in the last five years. And she put out word all around our networks and to other church streams and the rest of it. And there were quite a lot of churches responding saying, we pray for healing, we have laying on of hands, all this, that, and the other. But it was mainly churches from the New Wine Network uh, that had the stories. She gathered 600 stories, verified so, and she wasn't allowed to use any stories from their own church because her supervisor said it would compromise the research. And she's got her PhD, even though she was challenged heavily by a secular humanist external examiner. Um, but she stood her ground and the rest, it gave all the evidence, etc. And her supervisor, who is a rather lapsed Anglican, was absolutely astonished by her findings and the truth of these stories. So it's happening. But I want to tell you, I'd love to put all of you on a jumbo jet and fly you out to, to Kenya, take you to Western Kenya, because there it's like falling off a log seeing people get healed. I've, I've had people who've never ministered before. I'll give you one example. A man who used to be um, the, a director of the Australian New Zealand Bank. He's based in Wellington, New Zealand. He was a, a, a head of uh, Vision Fund International, chair of their, their board. 
and uh, a lovely, lovely man. He won't mind me telling you. John Hartley is his name. He's no longer. He's retired from that now. But John, I met him because I was teaching in Wellington, and they kindly had me to stay in their house. And his wife was very involved in this. He was just having a restful Saturday. We got chatting, and when he heard I was involved with Kenya and with his vision fund, they had work out there, uh, he said, I'd be very interested to see Bruce. So he, I said, well, come, and he was going over to Tanzania, so he came to us for five or six days, I think. And the first morning, I said, when we go to farm schools and the rest, we are going to minister to people, and we will do, you know, we, everywhere we go, we'll, we'll be sharing the gospel and healing the sick. He took me aside afterwards. Now he's becoming a real chief executive of, of big companies, all right? He said, Bruce, I just want to tell you, I pray for the sick in my private prayers. I've done that for years. But I've never hands-on ministered to anybody in my life. So please go gently with me. So I said, that's no problem. We had um, Neil Johnson with us, working with us in those days. I said, just team up with Neil and help him. So that's what he did. And the... Somebody got healed in front of everybody, then we got some more people up, and John was helping Neil, and they got healed. And then I said, anybody else here needs healing, because we, we needed to go. Well, we got a lot of people coming forward. So I said to all of them, including John, look, please just split up, get a local person to help you to interpret. John gave me one of those CEO looks, like we might be meeting in my office tomorrow morning to discuss <laughs> these things. Don't do this to me, Bruce. And I just said, look, please, John, look, look at how many people we've got to pray for. You want your lunch, don't you? Anyway, um, he got a local person to help him. Then I hear him calling my name about a minute later because the first person he's got to pray for, now he's never done it in his life before apart from helping Neil once. This, this person was completely deaf in one ear. And he's standing there saying, Bruce, you come and do it. I said, look, John, I've got all these people in front of me. You go for it. He gave me another look. It's not just going to be in my study tomorrow morning. You're dead meat. You're just fired. <laughs> anyway, then about two minutes later, three minutes later, he's standing with his hands limp by his side and looking in astonishment. This guy, had, he, they'd sent him out to check it out after they prayed briefly for him. He could hear perfectly through the healed ear, better than the, the, the ear that never needed it. Well, I tell you, from that moment on, that guy, John, was scribbling notes. He was ministering to anything that moved. He was having such a good time. And more than that, he's now ordained uh, out in New Zealand. So quite significant things. But I could tell you so many stories. How are we doing for time? How much? Two minutes. You know, in Africa, they say to us, you, you wazungu, you have clocks and watches. He said, we have time. <laughs> so I'm just teasing you. <clears throat> anyway, I, I must finish. I've gone on long enough. But uh, I'll just tell you once more. We went to one church, and I had my daughter with me. You were on that trip uh, in St. Stephen's, Luanda. And I wasn't meant to preach there. We were going somewhere else, just dropping off some of the guys to go to another church. And uh, I, they asked me to preach a short one, Kingdom of God. And, and then I got a word of knowledge saying, a woman with a, a weakness in her chest. That she coughed a lot and the rest whenever it got colder. And uh, I said, who is that? A woman in her 40s. So uh, straight away a hand went up and she came forward. And I had my daughter Kate with me. And uh, I, I said, how long have you had? Oh, I've had 
there, but that's not the only problem. You see this eye? I'm completely blind in this eye. And uh, my knees, you know, and, and I said, look, that's enough, okay. But I'm in a hurry, but also, I, I just want to be honest with you. On the inside, I wasn't sure at that moment that I had the faith to go for this blind eye. And I thought I'll become a charismatic fundamentalist. The Lord's word to me was problem with the chest, so that's what I'm going to go for. So I say, please close your eyes. Kate, help me. Lay hands on her and come Holy Spirit. Wait, desperately ask for the gift of faith for this chest. And then after a while, I sense, go for it. So all right, chest, be healed in Jesus' name. We've got it. We don't just pray for people. We're doing it in prayer, but we're ministering as ambassadors of the kingdom, exercising the Lord's authority. Chest, be healed in Jesus' name. Wait a moment or two for it to happen. Then I say, look at me, please. I say, how's your chest? Her first words, I can see. <laughs> she saw the utter bewilderment on my face and Kate's. So she turned around, and I promise you the church was long and narrow, and she pointed to a guy sitting at the back, and now she's got her hand over the eye that didn't need to be opened. She's got her hand over there, and she's pointing, hey, Benjamin, I can see you. She named all the guys at the back there. She still saw the look of bewilderment on her face. She looks out the window, still with a hand, and she counts chickens on the other side of the field. She said, see? <laughs> and, and then we went on to another church straight after that. And during the service, uh, I noticed when people came up to give their small offering, there was a woman there who had a branch of a eucalyptus tree, a gum tree, as she was too poor to even have a crutch. Her leg was horribly deformed through a, an accident, a road accident. And as she went forward, I felt the Lord say to me, you need to offer to pray for her after you've prayed for a few others, because otherwise she won't ask for it herself. So I, I did that after we, there was a young guy who's completely deaf in one ear who got his hearing back after about five minutes of prayer, and a couple of others. So I went to her and said, look, this your leg's really damaged. And she said, yes, car accident, etc." And uh, so I said, well, could we pray for you? And she came up, and uh, it took three shots. Means the first time she walked without the stick, but her leg was still badly deformed. And second time, she started walking much faster, and her legs seemed more normal. The third time, she jogged. And I'll never forget my dying day, seeing this lady jogging back towards us with tears of joy. People, Jesus is beautiful. And you see these things again, and his heart for the poor, his compassion, and that's everywhere. Whether people are poor spiritually or economically or socially, they're lonely or whatever, he, he's got such a heart for people whose lives are impoverished. Now I must finish there. But this is where I want to finish. I want to say to you, Every single one of us makes a difference, sitting here right now, to the freedom of the Holy Spirit to move. So some people saying, and that, I, this is knots and mungos, I know that, but oh, we don't do that in our church, so we don't, I don't like this or the rest of it. I just want to say, look, there's lovely coffee well away over there. <laughs> Please be blessed, but you're not being very helpful here right now. Um, we want to have people who on the inside are not just spectators, but if there's ministry happening up front, then say, yes, Lord, this is my brother, my sister. I care. I don't even know what's wrong with them or what they're praying for. But I want to hold them up to you saying, Lord, may your kingdom come in whatever ways need to come to help this brother or sister. And, 
so just that simple thing, but as a church, to pray. Say, Lord, we want much more. We praise you for every lovely thing we've already seen you do. And I've been hearing beautiful things from Molly. Um, but let, Lord, we want so much more for your glory so that the, the reputation, your reputation, Lord, will spread far and wide. Uh, we need to test, be willing to testify. If you're ever healed or honestly partly healed, so long as your testimony is true, testimony, honest testimony has God's presence and power in it to raise faith and also multiply that to which you are testifying. It's a powerful, powerful thing. So please, so many, and by the way, some Christians in some Western countries, a little way away from here, want to go to the doctor at least six times to confirm that they're healed before they'll give a testimony. Please don't be like that. If you have no more symptoms than the rest of them, testify honestly. Uh, and, um, but also offer yourself. If you haven't been trained already, get yourself trained to do it. But also, if you are trained to do it, and it's lovely when we minister to one another within lovely atmosphere of church, but be hungry. Say, Lord, please, I want divine appointments with people who need you who don't know you. And I'd love to be able to have the opportunity to pray for people. I'm going to stop.